Well, I am uh, thankful to God uh, for the opportunity to serve alongside faithful elders in this church, Bob being one of them, and thankful to God for His healing work when uh, there were times in that where we didn't know uh, what was going to happen with Bob's life. God knew all along, and God has healed him and restored his health to a point that he could stand up and lead us in prayer this morning. And so that is a good gift, and we are uh, thankful people for sure. This Advent, we've been walking through kind of a unique spot to get us ready for celebrating the birth of Jesus. How do we look forward to Jesus? By opening up the Old Testament, and we've opened up to the book of Judges and looked at the life of Gideon. In chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Judges, you can open up now to Judges chapter 8, which we'll be in today. And you'll recall that the story, the true story of what was happening at this time in history was that God's people had been disobedient, had not fulfilled their part of the covenant. And so God had sent a nation, Midian, to oppress them. And the Midianites were cruel, evil people. We learned that in chapter 6. And God's people, in their misery, cried out to God. God reminded them that it was their disobedience that got them here. But He also, in His grace and mercy, raised up one who would be a savior for them, a judge to deliver them. His name was Gideon. Gideon was a hesitant, fearful young man, but God called him to save his people at that time from the hand of the Midianites. Before, though, Gideon went to do that work, God realized that some work needed to be done within the people of Israel. So, Gideon's first mission was to destroy some altars to some false gods that were in his own dad's backyard, it seems. And so Gideon goes to do that in chapter 6. And then what we've been waiting for is for Gideon to have victory over the cruel, oppressive Midianites, which in chapter 7 last week, we got to see. Kids might remember more than adults that last week, I broke some pottery and played my trumpet because the seemingly silly strategy that was used by God's people was an army of more than 100,000 was encamped against them, right? And and the army that was with Gideon was only 32,000 people, so they're the underdog. But that army of 32,000 people, God whittled down until it was an army of 300 people, less than 1% of the original. And the silly strategy, it seemed, was that they were going to break pots, shine torches, play trumpets, and yell some things. And by those means, God did in fact cause the Midianites to fall before them. So that was chapter Seven. Now we're in chapter 8 and we're going to learn kind of how those loose ends get tied up and what happens and how it is that Gideon and Israel will respond to the God-given success. Remember that it was made to be clear in chapter 7 that the reason that God would take an already underdog army and shrink it down to 300 people was because there was a tendency in God's people to think that anytime something good happened, it was because they did it. And God wanted them to know, no, I did this. This was not by the strength of your own hand, but by my hand, that he alone might be glorified. God gave them success for that purpose, and now we wonder as we turn to chapter 8, how are they going to respond to that success? And we ask ourselves the question, how might we respond to God-given successes? I think there's much for us to learn here. Part of it, by the way, is warning. 
It's probably not much of a spoiler if you know the book of Judges that remember there's this cycle. There is sin and disobedience followed by oppression, followed by crying out to God, followed by God in His grace raising up a Savior and giving His people rest. But that's followed again in this cycle by more sin. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. So you might not be surprised to find out that though God has rescued His people from the cruel Midianites, what comes next is maybe not altogether good. Perhaps the way that Gideon responds to success and Israel responds to success could serve as a warning for us as God gives us success in a number of different ways. And so, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Judges chapter 8. We are going to look at the entire chapter today. It would take a long time to read all of it. During the course of the sermon, I will read all of the verses in Judges chapter 8. But as we stand together now, if you're able, I will just read the first 12 verses. So please stand. If you're able, we'll look at 8, 1 through 12 here first. Let's, let's pray. God, I need help. Uh, we all need help. There's a lot going on. And so our minds are in all sorts of different places. Our hearts are drawn towards all sorts of different things. But God, I pray that you would be at work in our minds, helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that you would be at work in our hearts, creating in us a longing, bringing about by your Spirit conviction. Whatever it is that you want to do, I pray that you would accomplish that now, even as I read your word and preach it in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 8. Verses 1 through 12. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbehah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. You can be seated. To be continued, we will read the rest of this here in a moment, but inside your bulletin, a sermon notes page and life group guide has some points for you to follow along with there. You note that the bulk of the success that 
God's people had experienced was in chapter 7. We kind of talked about that last week. The success that they had at the hand of the Lord driving their enemies out before them. And so in chapter 8 here, we see them starting to tie up some loose ends. The two princes of Midian had already been killed, and many of their army had already been killed, but there's still 15,000 left, along with two kings of Midian, but they're fleeing. Almost 90% of the army had already been wiped out. But after years of Israel suffering under the cruel hand of Midian, God had truly given Midian into the hands of Israel. And now they're just kind of cleaning things up. But you noticed, even when I just read these first 12 verses, that even in spite of the God-given success, there are some internal struggles and some sin that are starting to show themselves in Gideon and in the people of Israel. In other words, just as Midian was not the only problem that Israel had back in chapter 6 when Gideon had to tear down those idols, now even after Midian has mostly been defeated, we're going to see that Midian's not the only problem. Gideon's part of the problem, and Israel's part of the problem too. We see it, first of all, in verses 1 to 3. Now, we can't go over this in great detail, but Ephraim, you heard me read this already. It's kind of like this tribe of Ephraim, who is part of the people of Israel. They came complaining to, to Gideon because they didn't get called in soon enough. They are a more powerful, mighty military tribe than the little tribe that Gideon has come from. And they, now that Gideon has success and victory and has gotten some glory for it, they want in on it. And they got upset that they didn't get called earlier. And so what Gideon does to settle them down is he basically strokes their ego. Well, I mean, you're so much better at grape harvest than we are. And also, I mean, didn't you get the princes in the end? Right? So, so he's trying to settle them down, and it works. He settles them down. But we see the glory-seeking of some of the people of God already in verses 1 to 3. That's their response to success. Wait, we wanted some glory too, says the tribe of Ephraim. And then we went on and looked at verses 4 and following. You heard me read this interesting tale of Gideon's interaction with men in two Israelite cities. So he's, he's visiting people in the city of Succoth and the city of Penuel. These are fellow Jewish people, right? They're on the same team. And so he expects that as they're pursuing the two kings of Midian who are trying to get away, and his people are exhausted yet pursuing, it said, he expects that people from his own people would be wanting to help them. So he's just like, can I have some bread? We need some bread. We're exhausted. We need some bread. We're going to capture them. And what's their answer? Their answer is no. Why not? Because you haven't captured the kings yet. And why would they do that? Well, they would do that because they're fearful. The Midianites still have 15,000 people. The Israelites have 300. What if the Midianites win and the people in that city helped the losing army? What are the Midianites going to do to them when they come back? So they're freaked out. Like, I'm not giving you bread. I don't want to act like I'm on your team. Right? So, so you just go, and once you get the kings, then maybe we'll give you some bread. 
Okay? So, so it's an understandable, but you notice there's not unity in Israel. It's not like all God's people are convinced that God's doing something here and we should all be a part of it. It's kind of more like, yeah, I'm not too sure. And then, did you notice Gideon's response? This guy who so far has been kind of this like fearful, cautious, hesitant guy they say, we're not going to give you any bread. And did you hear his responses? Verse 7. Look at verse 7. This is ugly. He's talking to fellow Israelites, and he says this. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Well. God had given Gideon success, and it seems it went to his head. Now he thinks he deserves whatever he wants. This happens often. When people experience some kind of success, they become entitled kind of people, expecting they deserve all kinds of things from people. I ask for bread, you give me bread, I'm Gideon. Did you see what I did with that army? If you're not going to give it to me, then you're going to pay for it. I'm going to torture you. And in the men of Peniel, he says, I'm going to come and knock down your tower, he says in verse 9. Gideon seems a little different than the Gideon we knew in chapters 6 and 7. Sometimes success changes somebody. And then we're going to hear, as I keep reading, about Gideon increasingly, it seems, being driven by personal vengeance. Gideon, who at first was driven by obedience to the Lord, now it seems to be driven by personal vengeance. Let's read verses 13 to 17. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. Remember, this is the people in the city who would not give him bread when he came through. Verse 15, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And, verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. One note here, as we see kind of personal vengeance coming out, is that in chapter 7, one thing that was clear is that we hear the Lord directing every step of everything. One thing you'll notice as you get to chapter 8 is mentions of the Lord becoming much less frequent. And now it's just kind of successful Gideon who's let some things go to his head, just being cruel. You didn't give me bread, I'm going to torture you. You didn't give me bread, I'm going to kill you. Huh. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Verse 18, Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. So you get what he, so so now he's mad. Why? They killed his family. 
as the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. But they didn't, right? So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. The fearful, hesitant, I, I want to be for sure that God is, is really calling me to do what He's calling me to do, seeking the Lord kind of Gideon, has experienced success, and now he's become a brazen, self-confident, entitled, vengeful, cold-hearted warrior. In Judges, while there are temporary glimpses of things getting better, the general trajectory is a downward spiral. Gideon is judge number five out of twelve. And after him, it just gets worse. Even though God had done what God said He would do, very graciously delivering His rebellious people from the hands of the Midianites, used Gideon to save His people, we still see that their struggle against Midian was not the only struggle. Gideon had some sin issues to deal with. Israel altogether had some sin that they needed to deal with. Let's continue, verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. This kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That they're looking at Gideon knowing that they're struggling without a leader. And Gideon is the one, I mean, maybe not quite right. They, they give Gideon the credit. What did Gideon do? He just told people, pick up a trumpet and blow it, right? But, but you saved us, Gideon. Now you rule over us. We want a king. Gideon, you be the king. Rule over us. And I love Gideon's answer. Look at verse 23. This is beautiful. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. All of a sudden, God shows up again, and it's like Gideon's got the right answer. Who's going to rule over you? The Lord will rule over you. Yahweh, the Lord, He is our King. He gets the right answer. But Gideon is a human, like all of us, sinner by nature and by choice, and though he has the right answer, he has a hard time not taking some credit. One of the reasons that I went here is because I see myself in Gideon. Maybe you do too. Look at what happens in verse 24. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, 
we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Gideon makes a request, and because he seems to be a successful guy, the people give Gideon what he wants, and what will Gideon do with it? I mean, this sounds like something, if you know your Bible well, if you know the history of Israel, you got a guy who's taking gold from everybody else, you're starting to think, "Uh uh-oh, is he going to make a golden calf? Don't do that again. That did not go well when you took all the gold and you made a golden calf. Don't do that, Gideon. And, and Gideon, he's somewhat smart, and so he doesn't make a golden calf. All right? He doesn't make a golden calf. That's Exodus 32, where we hear about Israel making a golden calf. Back in Exodus chapter 28, four chapters earlier, God, God had never instructed his people to make a golden calf. But in Exodus 28, God had instructed his people to make a gold-laden ephod. That is a priestly vest or robe that would be worn by the high priest with the breastplate of judgment, stones representing every tribe of Israel. He would put this on, this ornate robe, and he would walk into the most holy place representing the the people of Israel and their sin before God. That was the purpose of an ephod according to Exodus chapter 28. Watch what Gideon does. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. What was an ephod to be used for? Worship in the temple in Jerusalem. What's he using it for? Display in his hometown. And all Israel, this is tragic, listen to this, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon into his family. God's intent all along was that he would make it clear to Gideon and to Israel that it was not their own success or their own strength that would win them what they needed, but that would only come by the hand of the Lord. But now that they've had a little bit of a taste of strength and success, It seems that Gideon has twisted God's specific instructions for a specific type of garment to be made for a specific purpose, and instead, Gideon has made something to display as a symbol of his success. Now, everybody who came to Ophrah could remember the greatness of Gideon. And the results are devastating for three groups. It says all Israel hoard after it there. Strong language. And it says that it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. That word, interestingly, snare, that shows up earlier in the book when it refers to what the nations around Israel would be to them. God had told them, drive them all out before you. Why? Because if you leave them there, they will become a snare to you. How ironic then that the very man that God has called to save his people from the surrounding nation 
in himself now introduces a snare to his own people. It becomes a snare for Gideon and his family. It's not the Midianites now. It's Gideon himself. This deeply flawed, sinful man introduces to them a new snare. Now, last point is about legacy. As we see throughout Scripture, God uses deeply flawed people to accomplish His purposes. So as we look at these final verses, we're going to see Gideon's legacy. We note, God did some good things through Gideon. Look at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. This is good for Israel, isn't it? Remember what the Midianites would do. They'd let the Israelites plant, and then when harvest time came, they'd come and take all of their food. Israelites were starving. Israelites were forced to go live in the mountains and dens and caves because of these people. Is it good that these people have been pushed out? Yes. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. A people who had been cruelly oppressed are now experiencing rest because of what Gideon did. So did God accomplish his purpose through Gideon? Yes. Once again, God has been merciful to his rebellious people. Interesting, though, this repeated cycle where we hear of God giving his people rest ends here. The book has 21 chapters, but this is the last time we're told that God's people had rest from their oppressors. Because stuff just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Well, the people had rest. What did this rest look like for Gideon or Jerubbaal, which was his nickname? Let's look at verses 29 and following. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now we're just reading it in English, like, oh, that's an interesting name, like probably not one Pastor Nick and Jen are thinking about for, I don't know, I hopefully I didn't ruin it, but you're not thinking Abimelech, right? You know what Abimelech means in Hebrew? My father is the king. Huh. That's an interesting thing. If, I mean, Gideon knew the right answer. They wanted him to be the king. He's like, no, the Lord will rule over you. What does he name his son? My father is king. Huh, interesting. And we're going to see, if you keep reading in Judges, Judges chapter 9 is what Abimelech does. He's an evil, cruel man. Gideon's legacy is super tainted. So rest for Gideon looks like he gets married to lots of different ladies they have lots of kids, and he lives in his house, and he's comfortable for the rest of his days. And then it says this, uh, verse 32, And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. The rest of, the rest of his life looks pretty good for him. But look at the legacy that he leaves. Look at the next verse, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-bereth their god. 
And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Had God done some good things and accomplished his purposes through Gideon? Yes. Was Gideon a complex, deeply flawed, sinful man who ultimately pointed a lot of people in the wrong direction? Yes. The legacy of compromise and half-obedience that started with Joshua's generation was just continued. And now things are going to get worse for God's people. Well, that's an interesting spot to just end. Uh, Again, like if I keep reading the book, like sometimes you keep like reading a book or keep watching a movie because like, oh, it's going to get better. You can keep reading. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Right? If you just read the book of Judges. We're not people who just read the book of Judges. Right? We're people who go beyond the book of Judges. There's much we can learn from the book of Judges, but we want to be people who go beyond that. And uh, let me, here's, here's what I'm going to do for the rest of the time. In your bulletin, there's a sermon notes page, and I've got down there four common responses to God-given success. I spent some time, and there's a bunch of slides, there's stuff in your life group guide about it, and we're not going to do it. Uh, if, you're, like, if you can't sleep at night unless you have your blanks filled in, let me give you the, I'll, I'll give you the words so you can fill in your blanks. Okay? Four common responses to success. We want the glory we saw that like the Ephraimites. We think we deserve it. Like Gideon who suddenly became a pretty entitled kind of guy. We exalt the successful person like they did with, oh, you, you saved us. You rule over us. And then we make sure we get some credit like Gideon did in the end. So that's what we could have spent probably about another 15, 20 minutes on Instead, I think I'm going to spend five minutes just getting a little more personal and ending this way. By acknowledging this, I want us to learn a lesson from Gideon and then ultimately get to Jesus still, but to learn a lesson from Gideon as we reflect on just life as a church. God has given our church success. I just met with the Free Church 101 class, people getting an introduction to our church. I am amazed that God would take six families back in the early 80s who would say, I think we need a church that preaches the gospel in this community. And that from this church, over a period of less than 40 years, there would be hundreds of disciples raised up and sent out, some of them as global missionaries, many of them just to other parts of this country. People being faithful moms and dads, pastors serving in other places, raised up from this church. God has been very gracious in giving all kinds of success. Now, in a couple of weeks, it will be the end of my 10th year of being a pastor of this church. And in those 10 years, I've gotten to see God give our church all kinds of success. We've sent out one more missionary, raised up many disciples, grown in number, had an increasing impact on our community. And what a joy it is to be a part of a church where God is clearly at work. He, the one who is giving success by a number of different measures to this church. What a joy it is. But we must also see in Gideon's life 
a warning. And to be honest, I see a warning for me as one of your pastors. God gives success so that the world would know that it is Him and not us. Yet, it seemed to go to Gideon's head. And while some good was done, his legacy was severely compromised. While I was writing this sermon this week, literally I was writing it, I was stuck, like I need to check my email. Check my email and I got an email from the president of the Evangelical Free Church of America saying that one of the key leaders in our national office staff uh, was under investigation for something uh, and has been removed from his position because of the results of the investigation. If you, if you want to find highlights or, or, or storylines of evangelical Christian leaders falling, even very successful ones, you can find all sorts of them. An example I used when I was preaching this passage to a group of pastors recently was this. A book that I found very helpful, a book by Paul Tripp called Dangerous Calling, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. Very helpful book. Came out in 2012. And on the back, as is the case with many books, they sought endorsements from people who were highly successful, who had some name recognition. Like, oh, everybody knows these people, and so if they think this book is really helpful, let's put that on the back cover. Five names. Copyright 2012. Pastor Nick has the second edition of this book, printed three years later in 2015. You know how many endorsements they have on the back of this one? Two. You know why? Because three of the men who gave an endorsement to a book about the dangerous calling, about the unique challenges of pastoral ministry, had had very public falls and were no longer serving as pastors. God had given these men great success. God had given Gideon great success. God has given our church great success in a number of different ways. And I read a passage like this and it scares me. Because I'm probably more like Gideon than I'd like to think. Thank you, church, for praying for me, praying for my family, praying for Pastor Nick, praying for Jen and their little one to come praying for our elders. Thank you, and please, please, please continue. Pray for our protection, that we would not allow any success that God gives to us to turn into a snare for us and our families. Pray that we would be people that aren't like Gideon. Gideon knew the right answer. When they wanted him to rule, no, the Lord will rule over you. Listen, I know a lot of right answers, but I don't want to be like Gideon who knows some right answers but doesn't know how to live right. Pray for us. And together, let's keep looking to Jesus, church. Sometimes you look in the Old Testament and you say, how does this point us to Jesus? Because that person seems like, oh, they're kind of like Jesus in this way. I look at Judges chapter 8, and the way that this drives me to Jesus is it makes me say, praise God that God raised up a Savior who was not like Gideon. Praise God that our salvation and our hope doesn't depend on deeply flawed, sinful human beings who are going to fail us sometime like Gideon. Praise God that he raised up Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Last week we looked at Philippians 2 verse 8. 
I want to point us to Philippians 2, verse 6, where it says this. Listen. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, right? eternal Son of God, with all the privileges that would come with that, empties himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, becoming truly human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even before that, at the beginning of his ministry, you might remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, much like Gideon tempted by the people of Israel, saying, hey, what do you want? We'll we'll give you anything. Satan says to Jesus, all all authority is mine over these kingdoms. I'll give you everything and remember what Jesus does. He's not like Gideon. He doesn't willingly take that for himself. No, he knows that his kingdom will come through his death and through his resurrection. And so he defies Satan's temptation. Praise God that he has sent Jesus, the better king, the better savior, the better deliverer, the better judge. Praise God that the peace that Jesus gives is not temporary, 40-year-long kind of peace like Gideon was able to give. That's not God's ultimate intent. His intent isn't to give the church a few good years or Israel a few years of rest. His intent was to send His Son that we might have peace with God through faith in Jesus. His intent was to send His Son that, that He would be King over all and that we would submit to Him. His reign is not temporary, but eternal. The rest that He offers us is not temporary, but eternal. And that's why during Advent it was good for us to look at the story of Gideon and this unfulfilled longing that we see of Israel. Because Gideon's not the one. He points us to the one, but he's not the one. And we're ready now to celebrate the one who is the one. After years and years of God's people looking to this judge or that king and every one of them failing, we long for Jesus the one who comes to save, the one who comes to bring peace, the one who comes to be king, the one who reigns forever. This is the one who we worship. And we're ready now, I think, to celebrate Christmas. So come back Saturday and Sunday as we do that. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled again. We're humbled as we look at failure and sin and flaws and we don't want to look at them lightly we want to see a passage like this and we want to be warned we want to be warned as individuals we want to be warned as a church we want to be convinced more and more as a church God that anything that happens is as a result of your work by your hand for your glory So God, thank you for work that you have done. And I pray that you would be glorified and we know that you are glorified most in your Son. 
And so we know it was very fitting that what seemed so simple, a baby being born and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, something so humble like that, yet it was also so appropriate for angel, a whole chorus of angels to be singing because the one born is king. And I pray that you would use even this song to help us in our preparation for the celebration of this king who has come and who is coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 